and my dad used to always say that a pat in the back is only six inches away from a kick up the arse. So I've always, always tell coaches that when they're speed testing young athletes, is just account for natural gains in speed. You know, be careful how much you pat yourself on the back. So because then what we see in post-peak height velocity is we see those natural speed, you know, diminish, diminish to less than a percent to about a percent and a half. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. If you're interested in youth training and more specifically youth speed training, this episode is definitely for you. So Hall did his PhD under John Cronin with an advisory panel, advisory team of John Oliver Rodri Lloyd, Ken Clark, like an unbelievable list of names that Michal has uh, has had in his academic life. And he's also transferred that to an applied setting as well, more recently with a GAA club, Claire, and uh, in various different other roles in his career. So this is a fascinating episode. Youth training, youth speed training, and diving into some of uh, Michal's research which is resisted speed training and yeah we dive into the depths of programming when it's appropriate when it's not appropriate and the thing that comes across is that when it comes to resisted spin training it's another tool in the toolbox we're not trying to polarize things to say it's the be all and end all or we should discount it so a really interesting episode coming up with Michal. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Smarterbase. So Smarterbase is the premier human performance optimization platform for elite sports teams and military organizations. So built on an infinitely configurable framework, Smarterbase is the most flexible software on the market. Create an adaptable solution to support your unique strategies, processes, and culture for a fraction of the cost and time it takes to build your own. Centralize your performance and health data by easily integrating with other tech and data systems using Smarterbase's robust API and pre-built connectors. Improve performance and reduce injury by enabling better communication and decision-making with role-based access, custom workflows, mobile apps, and personalized visual dashboards. And with the Smarterbase success guarantee, you can be confident in your human performance solution and the people who stand by it. Visit smarterbase.com to learn how Smarterbase can help you improve athlete performance and service member combat readiness. This episode is also sponsored by Team Builder. Team Builder is a software for performance coaches around the world. The powerhouse platform increases efficiency, saves paper, and can handle any type of programming. It's the perfect fit for professional and academy teams, performance institutes, schools, and universities. Team Builder is full of tools that help coaches' needs. Multiple max tracking methods, 16 plus reports, evaluation testing, and goal setting, just to name a few. Coaches also have access to consultations with Team Builder's in house sports scientists to help manage and analyze data. Head to teambuilder.com and sign up with promo code SPORTSMITH to start your 30 day free trial. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. 
Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics Force Plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics Force Plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Michal. Michal Kale, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks very much, Rob. I'm uh, delighted to be on with you. It's been a long time coming. I feel like I've pestered you. I say this to everyone. It's, it's grim, really, when I, I listen to myself. But I feel like I've pestered you for a while. But things, the stars have aligned. You're back home, back in Ireland, back with working for one of our sponsors, Santa College. So would you mind just giving us a bit of a an update on what's going on? Because I'm guessing people will know you from your PhD work, from your work with youth athletes. So just give us a bit of a... Uh, an intro on you and how things have changed recently yeah no problem um like i said thanks thanks rob for coming on i think it was it was third time lucky this week that we we, we finally uh, or this month even that we finally got it and before that we were a few months and years trying to align it but um yeah look i mean for me um honored to be honest uh, i suppose i spent the formative uh, years of my career listening to podcasts on drives you know right from um, across multiple different ones and then uh, listening to this way back when and you're into the um, much more into the hundreds with, with, with amount of episodes now but um, and I even listened to it on in, in Texas for the last 10 years uh, I used to get into my car and I had a regular commute from Dallas to Houston and I would come out and it would say uh, take a left and then it would tell me take another left, and they would say continue straight for two hundred and seventy three miles. <laughs> so um, I feel like you've been keeping me company on those drives for Mate, a that, few years now as well. Michal, that could have been a risk of you falling asleep. I know it's, <laughs> I'm not doing the most of the talking, but when I do, it could be a, there could be a nodding dog going on. Yeah. But no, I appreciate that. Thank you. Sorry, yeah. mate. Carry on. No, you're all good. But um, look, as you said, yeah, originally from Ireland, um, thus the name. Uh, I spent ten years in Texas. Introducing myself as it's me hall like you hall, but it's me hall. So, um, ninety nine percent of people don't get the name, but um, it's like a U haul moving truck, but it's actually me hall. Um, and yeah, for me, look, academia and sports—they've always been cornerstones of my life. Um, I was lucky enough to have a family upbringing that allowed me to travel a lot as well. So, you know, my my kind of. Uh, last few years has really been or the whole of my life has been around academia sport and travel and like many people in the strength conditioning industry I played a lot of sport growing up you know played just about anything and primarily Gaelic football would have been what I played as a player um, and I've, I've always viewed my workload uh, as a balancing act between personal professional and academic work and me personally I work much better in a juggling act than I do concentrating on one thing I just get bored so, um, but yes, yeah, so I was on, I was educated in Ireland, um, in Institute of Technology Tralee and then University of Limerick for my bachelor's and my master's worked in elite level Gaelic football during that period of time as well. And I got a really good practical educate education. Um, I suppose the first turning point for me were those three things, uh, travel, personal, um, sports and academia where they started to align was just doing an internship like, like you know a lot of people um in the industry and for me it was I remember sitting down one weekend and sending out 278 emails around the world 
and uh, about, and I individualized them as best I could. And I got about 100 no's, about 175 no responses. And three people got back to me with possibility. And it was University of Seattle, the Manukau Steelers, which ironically ended up being affiliated with in New Zealand many years later, and the Baylor Bears. Um, and, you know, my, my dad was actually sick at the time, so it was a tough time to go. But I chose to go. I took out a 10 grand loan. Two grand to fly, two grand for a visa and six grand to live. And I had some accommodation costs covered. And I stayed there for eight months with uh, Kaz Kazadi was, was, was one of the ones in, in over Baylor. And I loved it. And I suppose it really helped define my coaching style, my philosophy and, and, and my passion, really. Um, after that, then, yeah, I was back in Ireland, finished my master's, said. Um, and I, but then I moved to Dallas uh, permanently in 2013. Um, I took up a role as a director of sports science at Jesuit College Dallas um, with Jeremy Weeks and oversaw about 21 sports across 750 athletes coming in each week, uh, which was a huge learning experience, just gave me a, a, a huge learning curve across so many different sports, such a vast array. And that's where I carried out majority of my, my PhD research on speed in young athletes, which probably chat about later but um like that juggling act i got a little bit of itchy feet and uh undertook a phd with uh professor john cronin at aut so from ireland living in dallas studying in auckland at this point so uh i was the longest commuting phd student in the world because technically i was full-time so um but i was granted 10 and a half months off campus for data collection purposes. Um, so I used to have my meetings halfway between Dallas and Auckland, which was at Cardiff Met with um, John Oliver and Rodri Lloyd were on my um, supervisory committee. So I, I was very, very lucky. I was spoiled rotten with my supervisory committee. Again, from a, all the three things, from a personal, from a professional and from an academic standpoint, I had John Cronin, who's a, who's a very close friend of mine at the moment and a mentor. Um, I had John Oliver and Roger Lloyd from a pediatric exercise physiology standpoint. And then I had Ken Clark and Matt Cross from a speed standpoint. So, you know, I, I consider it the dream team and they're all very close friends of mine as well and collaborate professionally and academically too. Yeah, so look for that. I suppose that was one of the big second turning points in mine was meeting J J John Cronin. I, I, was, I had a great academic experience, undergraduate and master's, but I suppose I had a taint of the research being a little bit of an academic hierarchical approach to where um, I wasn't 100% sure on it and I really wanted it to be applied. And I always viewed my research to be, a coach should be able to read it, pick it up, put it down and say, I can implement this on a qualitative a with one athlete I can do semi with 10 athletes or I just understand the generic theme of this I can still make a difference if I'm coaching 40 athletes so uh yeah met JC arrived in flip-flops uh sleeveless top and shorts picked me up brought me uh JC John Cronin brought me for a beer and I'll never forget it he just said to me uh take care of the student and the PhD will take care of itself and that, that was that was just huge for me and uh so I knew I had a support system around me. So I suppose if if I sum it up, I from starting my PhD to finishing my PhD at Auckland University of Technology, I ended up getting married, bought a house, buried a father, had two kids, changed job, and six publications um, in that period of time. So in fact, six days after my second son was born, I had to fly to Auckland to defend my thesis. 
So the due date and defending my thesis were very close proximity. So it was a little bit of uh, uh, hoping that, that uh, the, the uh, J would come. So we're three now, but um, yeah. So then the last five years, I took on a, a, a CEO role at Athlete Training and Health. I was there for five years and oversaw the integration uh, of the training philosophy across really a broad kind of multidisciplinary uh, sports science and medicine team integrating with hospitals and some professional teams across about three to five locations. And I really enjoyed it. You know, I got to work and work with coaches more so and dealing with athletes from eight to, or people from eight to 88, from amateur to professional. Um, I just recently left ATH, obviously uh, went with Satanta, I suppose. To be honest, my uh, my passion had deviated a little bit to, from why I got involved in the industry and I found myself focusing more on just some kind of real estate and business rather than really making an impact on athletes. And I wanted to bring that back to center. So moved to Dallas with one suitcase and came home with a wife, Jenny, uh, three kids, Stephen, Jay and Tiernan and 18 suitcases. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind six weeks since I arrived home, but um, it's been brilliant. And I suppose brings me to right now. Yeah, currently just with Satanta as a, a vice president of strategy and registrar. And to be honest, it's just such a perfect blend of talk about those three things, uh, academia, personal and professional um aspects you know i've always um i've always been uh looking at envy with regards their approach on how they really target the practitioner and applied an academic blended learning um and coaching and facilitate people's growth personally professionally and academically at the same time and look i get to work very closely now with the likes of des ryan ian jeffries uh liam hennessy so it's uh it's just great and i'm swamped in what again is my passion so it's uh it's it's a really good next step for me so yeah, that's kind of me in a nutshell what um, a story up to now good yeah. story right i love that and i love the take out a 10 grand loan two grand for the flight two grand for the visa six six grand to uh to, to live I, I love that it's a, it's a great little story but i want to dive into speed training with youth athletes. We're going to spend a bit of time here and then we're going to transition into specifically resisted sprint training, which I know is some of your research that we'll we'll dive into as well. So firstly, your philosophy around speed training with youth athletes, then we're going to kind of divvy it up and, and go with different phases. But what's your philosophy when it comes to this? When it comes to working with, with youth athletes? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's. I would say it's very holistic, um, and especially when you're dealing with youth athletes. One of the things I've always said is the greatest measurement of success, just overarching with youth athletes, speed aside, is the greatest, um, especially or younger children, that the greatest metric or measurement of success of training is um, from what you can see is cuts on their knees, uh, bruises on their legs, and scrapes on their shins you know, at a young age. And then psychosocially, it's how many times they grab your hand to bring you to training or practice, not you grabbing their hand to bring them to training and practice. Because um, I think we've become so structured in nature um, and we're, we're starting to lose that low structured approach. And it's just, it, to me, it's so important. Um, and, and, and that's key from a holistic standpoint. And then, you know, for from a, a training philosophy standpoint, 
anything I've ever done is really understanding the science and knowing why we do it. And when you know why you do it, it's always a lot easier to pick what you want to do. And you just get this vast array and this arsenal of, of exercises when you understand why you do it. So for me, it's what is the underlying um, uh, science that aligns with who you're working with. And then really you'll be able to, to determine the rate of adaptation and uh, what you want to implement. So, you know, follow on from that. If you're talking about youth athletes and you're talking about developing speed with them, there's just, to me, there's some, some important things to, to understand that are some, sometimes can be overlooked. Um, and, you know, it's the, the development of speed, it, it, it runs parallel with the natural development of motor coordination. And really it's about creating the building blocks to provide a solid foundation, which is absolutely key. Um, I think uh, Rodri, Rodri Loy used to always say that he imagined it as the first phase is laying the blocks at a young age and the second phase then is filling them with concrete. And it always stuck with me laying those blocks because a failure to develop, you know, sprint speed during childhood, that in turn can hinder um, opportunities as an adult. So laying those foundations is really, really key. Um, and then it's so multifactorial, um, really. There's no... You can't identify one single variable. It's, it's, it's impossible to identify one single variable. There's so much going on with alterations to the muscle, to the tendon, motor control development and coordination as well. So, but some important things to realize is that it's nonlinear and fashional. So that first spurt is in the uh, pre-puberty pre um, and it's typically uh, attributed to a uh, uh, rapid increase in the central nervous system um, and then the second spurt is that it is usually due or at the onset of sexual maturity a um, little bit unclear from a gender standpoint uh, in females with regards uh, the, the the how much of a spurt there is in females compared to males in that second one um, but some things we see in it uh, across it you know, you can break them further down then when you understand it's nonlinear just into the pre, mid and post uh, peak height velocity stages. So for me, that's the first thing is just understanding some of those aspects. And, you know, it goes back to, I think it was Avery Fagenbaum that youth athletes are not mini adults um, approach to it and just being able to ensure that you have a good psychosocial and physical um, way of approaching it. So is there any period of time, Michal, where you can really push and then there's other periods where you have to really pull back when it comes to when it comes to the the things that we're trying to do to develop to develop speed or or as a whole yeah. to be honest yeah i mean even when i was at when i was at athlete training health and we were um you know we were a commercial entity i still turn away anyone that's younger than eight years of age um just didn't train them uh because i honestly believe they belong in the playground um cuts in the knees scrapes in the shins you know bruises um and we're a commercial entity so uh, but really stand by that um and i suppose that yeah that it's kind of a segue into pre mid and post and there's different um implications at each each area now, let me just preface it as well by saying pre mid and post is that's one band you know but you know training history and training competence can override those as well we don't want to we have a tendency of compartmentalizing especially in strength conditioning and hearing one thing and putting it in the box and the other box remains closed you know there are even pre there's training history and there's there's training competency which will it's a guideline 
um, for it. But for pre, yeah, for pre peak height velocity, you know, for me, low structure and a focus on functional movement skills is absolutely key. Um, and uh, you know, someone say you want to get a, a pre pre pubertal um, child fast. A, you got to sprint fast to get fast. That is the most important thing. You know, get up to top speed. Don't worry about dampening their central nervous system. You can bloody sprint them all day um, pre-puberty and you won't dampen that. But, um, you know, and that's due to that kind of rapid learning effect. But I, I would have had people on climbing walls. I used to put uh, youth athletes, young pre-puberty on climbing walls and just watch the way they move. Someone will move laterally, you know, very much so in a sagittal plane. Other someone else will cross their legs each time. And it's just small things, developing stability, shoulder, really building the building blocks. One of the other ways of improving speed, which with youth athletes would have been a um, obstacle course, functional movement obstacle course we would use as well, just getting them used to all proprioceptive components. And then prepubertal would be huge exposure to multiple different forms of, of stimuli, resisted sprinting, overspeed sprinting, not doing it from a standpoint of trying to periodize it at a specific percentage of velocity at that age, just exposing them to a vast array. And I suppose the underlying, which I spoke about when you asked about my philosophy, is that that's what we do. But why we chose it specific to that age would be, you know, your gait is typically formed by the time you're eight years of age. Central nervous system is 95% developed um, and that's due to that rapid learning effect. Um, and then it's just so key to give that random exposure to different sprint stimulus during, during that period of time. The next one is mid, where um, I suppose you have to be a little bit more um, conscientious during that period of time. You know, some, it's actually mistaken a lot of time for the most rapid period of growth in, uh, in a child. It's actually not. The most rapid period of growth in a child is from zero to two. And um, you get a spurt, and that's that non-linear, and you get that peak height velocity um, during that mid-peak height velocity phase. Some great work, obviously, with John Oliver, Roger Lloyd, Sean Cummings. Um, some people have done huge work in that. Uh, but it's really due to the pruning of the brain. And it's a, it's a really good chance to reinforce functional movement skills during that period of time as well. So don't just close the book on that. You can really reinforce functional movement skills. Um, but if you think about what happens between zero and two and what happens in the growth spurt, you know, they're both really fast periods of growth, is they sleep all the time because the body is continually growing. So when I'm speaking with parents, it would be very much telling them that even when your child during this period of time is resting, and you can use multiple equations for this, you can do predicted adult height, you can do the Merwald equation as well for it as well, but is that even when your child is recovering, they're not really recovering like they used to or like you do because their body is still growing at a disproportionate rate. And from a sprint standpoint, I mean, if you think of it is you, the long bones of the limbs are growing disproportionate to the torso. And in turn, with that, what you're getting is muscle and tendon growth differs compared to bone density. Um, and then the likelihood of injury is much higher as well. So it's probably just listen to the, to the athlete and listen to them. Um, one area that's not discussed a whole pile, but that I'm fascinated from a sprinting or plyometric standpoint is also about approximately about 12 to 18 months after that growth spurt or peak height velocity, you can get a thing called peak weight velocity, which can be so much more pronounced and obviously with the differences in testosterone in males and estrogen in females but you know that can be like when they put on that much mass that's like rob 
me just giving you a weight vest and telling you, right, do plyometrics on it now as well. So one of the areas I'm really interested in is the transition from that pre to mid or preparing them for the demands of the growth spurt, but also that peak weight velocity. So like just teaching people how to do pogo hops properly, you know, with regards, I always say tapping to the beat of a song so that they're striking with that midfoot and ball of the feet um, so that they can actually prepare the body and attenuate, have the tendons prepared to attenuate the forces that are going to be put on them when they get to that phase of time. I suppose with both of those phases, you've got speed is naturally increasing. I think it's about a circa 3% um, uh, natural gains in speed. So I think I said, I was chatting with you before, Rob, I think I said this, but but it's something I was talking My dad used to always say that a pat in the back is only six inches away from a kick up the arse. Yes, you did. So, uh, yeah, so I've always always tell coaches that when they're speed testing young athletes is just account for natural gains in speed you know be careful how much you pat yourself on the back so because then what we see in post peak height velocity is we see those natural speed you know diminish diminish to less than a percent to about a percent and a half uh you know rob myers has done uh rump they've all done some great work in that looking at it across but we start to see it a lot tougher and that's probably when i would get a little bit more phase specific and differentiate between some acceleration practices and some max velocity practices um, during that period of time and just ensure that the older they get that there's a little bit more synergy between the uh, training plan um, and the sprint work that you're, tr- you're uh, trying to improve so that really would be would be key to me but yeah they're the three phases Rob and some of the key key areas I think worth knowing from um, a science standpoint that's great but I, you did tell me that quote before and I love oh. it. I love it just as much a second time as in the first time. So no, thank you I'm, for sharing that. Um, I'm full of one-liners. I'm here all day. <laughs> keep them coming, keep them coming. <laughs> so one thing that I think is really, really interesting based on some of the research that you've done is sled pulls and sled pushes. Two methods. Is there any particular reason why you would use one over the other in this sort of population? Any time periods, any deficiencies that you may see which leads you down one track than the other and what are the differences in terms of adaptation uh yeah i suppose look um if i could just rewind it back just a little bit on the sled and then i'll come back to it but it's like i'm always very conscious of talking about resistance sled training right Um, we will we will come back to this in more detail as as a whole yeah no no i think uh, and I'll probably emphasize this this one line again, right? Because uh, and and I, I just I think it's so important. I think we've become so polarized on training methods um, and different aspects. Uh, I did a presentation once, and it was about uniting penguins and polar bears. Uh, and you'll never see a penguin and a polar bear together because they live in different north and south poles, right? And sometimes I think it gets that with top speed versus resistance sprinting, or vertical versus horizontal force, right? And I. I I love them both just as equal. I saw Peter on you one of your present your recent ones, Peter Wayand. Thought was excellent. You know I was so lucky that Peter Wayand was down the road for me in Dallas. So even though I would be to people that don't know me well, I I would sometimes joke and tell people like I I don't have a pram or a buggy or a stroller. I actually take my kids for a walk in a prowler push sled, <laughs> um because um <laughs> you know we can become so polarized on it. So and we'll come back to some resisted work, but yeah specifically for youth. Again, why are you trying to use it? 
So if I'm trying to reinforce certain aspects of technical competency, you know, and I'll break it down, I have used a push sled because especially with weaker athletes, uh, primarily kids, the, the difference, one of the major differences, obviously, between using a push sled and a pull sled is the push sled is uh, um, anterior load and a pull sled is posterior load. So for young athletes, it can actually help support their body um, and the arms out in front in order to get that good power angle or line from the heel to the ear. So for me, just to emphasize trying to get them to explode out or trying to get them to uh, a forward lean, I see a push sled from a technical standpoint as nothing more than a progression from a wall drill. You know, a wall drill is you get them in the angle and, and I've always looked at um, as a basis for developing speed in, young, in youth athletes, I've looked at it starting with, right, you start with postural control. And you want to start with postural control from a static standpoint. Okay, great. You can do that through wall drills. You can work on getting proper mechanics, leg lift, get the ankle relation to where you want it in the knee, get them to drive, push the ground away, all the good coaching cues. Great filler to have in. Static postural control. Then I'll go, okay, next progression on once they get that is dynamic postural control. And what I've done then is I've put them on a push sled. So I want you to do the same thing, except you're going to do it moving in horizontally in a dynamic um, movement and apply the exact same principles. So great for enforcing some accelerative technique work. And then once we get from the dynamic aspect, the next progression I would always have used was a cyclic postural control. And that's where you then start getting them to move a little bit quicker and start bringing in the more cyclic type, type action or the more piston type action specifically for accelerative um, strength. So there's just an example of a push sled. We'll probably talk a little bit more and resist it. As a, one thing which I would have learned is don't ever use a push sled unless you put a ton of weight on it from a te technique standpoint because what happens is it gets pushed too far out in front. If they can't support their body on it, the back rounds. I treat a sled as not really a sprint exercise. Like I'm not a sprint coach. I've worked in team sports primarily, but I have a huge emphasis in acceleration in team sports. Um, but what I would focus on for the the push sled is ensuring that if there's not enough weight your athletes will push it forward and the back will round so i've actually stopped using it from a light to really a moderate standpoint first off i want to ensure that they can keep that power line from the ankle to the ear when they drive just to ensure that we're optimizing the foot strike because if we're not optimizing the foot strike we're just we're not putting force horizontally into the ground in it you know it's probably just going to get an energy leak so same as a squat um, to me, it's just a horizontal strength training exercise. With the, uh, I love some overspeed stuff with youth athletes as well. Get them familiar to it. Myself and Ken Clark did a really cool study up with Chris Corfist in Chicago one time, looking at overspeed and potentiation in youth athletes. And although we didn't put it in the study, you know, we had a huge PAP effect. It was outside the actual study we were looking at, but a huge PAP, PAP effect from overspeed. Um, just exposing them to that stimuli and exposing the body to that stimuli. So, um, yeah, and then sled pull, you know, same thing, just ensuring that I think sometimes we forget to differentiate between instructing and coaching. So for me, instructing and prescribing is 20% of the battle. 80% of the battle is coaching it. So if I'm going to prescribe a sled load with a youth athlete, I might be doing it from a technical standpoint, 
And what I'll be asking them to do is point their belt buckle to the sky. You know, if I'm working on the transition aspect coming out of acceleration into uh, in the latter phases of acceleration. And sometimes the belt can help cue the athlete, the weight belt can help cue the athlete, uh, the youth athlete, to be able to push their hips into extension as they're in that late acceleration. And we're forgetting about the load here. So I spoke about different types of postural control, but a simple guide I typically follow with youth athletes is first, if you've got a section of 10 minutes, first let them express speed. The whole part whole approach. Let them express speed. Stand back and look and see where what you're trying to coach. Stand in your observation zone, be it zone, be it first five yards if it's acceleration emphasis, 20 to 30 yards if it's velocity emphasis, and just stand in your observation zone. Get them to express speed, look at it. Then I'll go, right, we're going to teach speed. So express speed, make sure, because if to get fast, you got to run fast. That's key. Then get them to break it down, teach speed. Okay, we're going to work on this aspect from a technical standpoint, and then I call it compete speed. Then get them to compete and see that they retain um, what you've taught them, or get them to compete externally or intrinsically against time or against another athlete. So, a little bit of a tangent there um, on that, Rob, but uh, that's just some ways, examples of resisted, resisted work or how sled push and pull can differ with youth athletes and this uh, this this next question may be a bit of a murky one and, and just too general in nature but i think we've we've talked about time to develop the technical aspect of of speed and time to develop the physical aspect of speed when it when it comes to the the, the kind of transition through that like you mentioned the eight-year-old as a as a minimum or nine-year-old as a minimum up to 16 17 would there be variations in the amount of time you would spend on both of them and how what would that look like yeah i think it's it's very dependent on the time you have with them and what you're looking to get or kind of your your bang for your buck as such i think there's there's some there, there's always three areas i was very lucky through through um ken clark I haven't spoke I haven't been able to be a good friend of mine and call him and then and obviously uh with with Peter Wayne too uh, as well and these are three things always stuck me when 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 you're thinking about speed is first that speed can only change when you're in contact with the ground so the practical application that is focus on piston leg action focus on putting force into the ground horizontal and vertical that's it can only change so you want to reduce the circular type action to minimize additional time in the air second thing would be that increases in either horizontal force or vertical force they have a big impact on sprint performance um so for me and if it was sleds it would be powerful pushes to produce greater horizontal force and then this is really key is that you can't have one without the other so you know you need a forward body lean to direct force optimally uh, but if you just focus on horizontal force, all you end up with is a broken nose. And that's all you end up with because you need enough vertical force to keep you upright. Um, so then when you take those three principles and you apply it to what you asked about time spent, you just look at the environment and the resources you're working with. For example, if I'm working with a team sport athlete with a minimal amount of time to come back, I may just put a try and combine them and do some resisted type work in let's say earlier in the week and i'll have him do some accelerative work through be it sled push or sled pull 
um, try and focus as well on really emphasizing good technique. And it doesn't mean I don't do anything unresisted. Maybe in the back half of the week closer to games with that team sport youth athlete, what we'll end up focusing on is some velocity work with no resisted um whatso no resisted work whatsoever. Um you know, obviously the sport you're working with, if you're working with uh, track and field type athletes, you'll spend a lot more time on that, um, on the technical components. Um, but here's how I view, and I'm always trying to find the good middle ground, is when I'm looking at res- as a resisted modality, I actually, first and foremost, I see it as horizontal strength training. It's a horizontal strength training exercise. And where I've typically put it is, in between our, we'll go warm up, athletic movement skills being our jumping and sprinting ability where we'll do technical work and dependent on the needs of the athlete, the sport, the time available, it's all unresisted technical work and it's getting max velocity through max velocity through an acceleration phase or through max velocity. Uh, we'll do jumping before and then after that, instead of going straight into the weight room or straight strength, I actually have a horizontal strength training component. Because to me, resistance training and horizontal strength training should supplement a good training program. It shouldn't substitute for other aspects of training. So, um, yeah, that's typically where I would I would put that um, put that in a training program in there. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Michal. Hope you enjoyed part one. So we've already kind of transitioned into the second half of the episode already, but the bulk of this second part is around resisted sprint training. Still pushing, still pulling, but diving into the research, diving into its application, and again, emphasizing not to polarize things. So really interesting part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Omega Wave. Omega Wave is the only non-invasive at-rest technology on the market that analyzes readiness to train via both brain and cardiac analysis. Using DC potential and HRV to understand your brain's energy level and autonomic nervous system balance allows you to use objective data on recovery and readiness that in turn helps you to truly individualize your training and thus optimize performance. Omega Wave also measures ECG from the V6 position. This data can be used by the medical profession to check cardiac health on a frequent basis. The measurement takes only four minutes to perform and results are visualized in an intuitive way thanks to our windows of trainability concept. Omega Wave is used by hundreds of elite sports, military, and law enforcement organizations. Omega Wave are also the official partner of the UFC Performance Institute. Learn more about Omega Wave by visiting their website, omegawave.com, and their social media channels. And this episode is also sponsored by Stanta College. Stanta College, led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, provides international recognized qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science from certificate to master's level. Courses are designed by industry leaders such as Des Ryan and Professor Ian Jeffries, ensuring students and graduates are at the cutting edge of technology and learning the most current methodologies from world-renowned practitioners. Stanta College's unique blended learning approach allows you to take the next step in your career in your own time and at your own pace. Lectures are delivered in an online classroom, while residential workshops provide the perfect opportunity 
for practical application of your studies with guidance from experts within the field of sports science and performance coaching. With campus locations across Ireland, the UK, USA, India and South Africa, applications are now open for courses including the BSc in Strength and Conditioning, MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Physiology. Visit satantacollege.com for more information on how to apply. And now back to the episode with Hall. The second half of this chat, I want to chat specifically around resisted sprints. And I know we've kind of transitioned there already, but this is more probably for the, not only for the youth athlete, but the, the adult senior athlete as, as well. So a practitioner out there has read your work, has read the work of various different other um, researchers when it comes to resisted sprints. They think this, this they've read it, great idea, I'm in. How do they assess what's needed for their athlete? That's the first part of call. Would you be able to talk us through how you would do that? How would you assess where to focus the time within the resisted sprint um, method? Yeah, I suppose like anything, um, uh, resisted resisted sprinting and modes, different modes. It's like if it, it's similar to, um, you know, we always assessed for one rep max, and we would spend hours on Excel spreadsheets differentiating between eighty seven and a half percent being a five rep max and ninety percent being a three rep max, and programming in half percent increments. And it was when I went to Baylor actually first, I would see the amount of time that was spent on strength in the weight room. And, but then I would see the amount of emphasis put on speed. And at that time, you know, when I was there, I think it was Robert RG3 was there and he saw went second in the, in the draft for mega money. And like, you know, the, the amount of money that a, um, a 40 yard dash can be worth, you know, 0.1 of a second in a 40 yard dash. So, speed was always king but we weren't ever programming for speed we've started to see that now with maximal aerobic speed you know i'm actually at the moment i just took on because like i said i like taking on stuff head of athletic performance for the clare uh, gaelic football team here in ireland and love it and working with a group of 40 athletes um and and really trying to get into the maximal aerobic speed because i had a an emphasis i suppose on strength and power for the last 10 years where Conditioning wouldn't have as, as much an emphasis across the majority of sports in America as it does in Europe. But um, so maximum aerobic speed, we started programming for that. So I'm going, I'll never forget seeing a picture. And it was, a, it was someone coming out of a blocks, sprint blocks. And the coach beside me said, he pointed to the knee and he goes, that's why we squat, squat for the knee. And then he pointed to his hips, like projecting out of the blocks. And he said, that's why we clean hip dominant triple extension. And I looked at it and I, it made no sense to me, none whatsoever. Because in my head, I was saying, well, that's, they're both vertical movements and this is a horizontal type movement. So I thought it made a lot. And we would spend so much time programming and assessing and monitoring those exercises in a vertical plane of motion, but not much in a horizontal plane of motion. So to me, that was the first thing I wanted to do is look at how do we assess. So, you know, most simply to assess is you take a, if you want to prescribe, let's say a one rep max for resisted sled pushing or pulling is you, you first off just need a, um, their max speed in let's say meters per second. So have them run an unresisted sprint. You know, a lot of teams now have obviously got, um, 
GPS. And there's been lots of work done on that and it's become, you know, shown as valid for maximal sprint speed and looking at some of the work Garrett Sanford's doing with, with, with sprint speed versus maximal aerobic speed for anaerobic speed reserve. So you can get their max speed out of that in a game or you can just set up two timing gates, do a fly. You don't need to do a 40 meter fly or fly or a 60 meter fly. Reading the research, people accelerate. Typically your team sport athletes will accelerate between 30 to 35 meters they'll hit their top speed or 20 25 to 35 meters majority will hit their top speed two gates um and you get a get their top speed once you have that um because uh force and velocity have a linear relationship what you need to do is put a load be it sled pushing or sled pulling a load that slows them by more than 50 percent and a load that slows them by less than 50%. So what I would do typically then is three sprint trials, and I would have them go at, uh, pull a light load, let's say. It massively differs, obviously, dependent on surface, so you need to be consistent in surface. But that was one of the reasons, sorry, a little tangent again, that was one of the reasons I got into it, was I was chatting with you know, a professional rugby club. I said, well, what load do you use on sled pushing or pulling? Wanted to develop can assist in developing speed um i'm not saying it beats top unresisted speed right <laughs> you know but i'd be putting my money on it ahead of a squat and the amount of time spent on a squat um and it was just oh well if it's wet we put 100 kg and if it's light we put 60 kg on it and i was thinking mm, doesn't make sense to me so yeah a light load so it could be 30 percent of body mass then a heavy load could be 100 percent of body mass um for a sled pull um and then i have a, actually have a calculator on, on 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 my website which allows you to plug them in um and it'll spit out to me i defined it into uh four different zones a technical kind of competency zone um which is you can use a really light load if you want to emphasize some sort of a technical one because it doesn't affect sprint mechanics typically under 10 percent then a, a speed strength zone um then a power zone and last one a strength speed zone so really building on some work by the likes of brian mann in a linear um plane of motion but one unresisted sprint trial two resisted sprint trials you can plug them into a calculator i have it on my website you can probably link that it's mcahillphd.com um, and it'll spit it out for you. Very aware that some people don't have the uh, even that GPS or even timing gates mightn't be available to them. So you can just take the general guideline, um, which we'll probably talk about in a little bit, but that's when to use heavy, when to use moderate, and when to use light. Um, I would have, I suppose from a research on a qualitative standpoint, you know, one of the things that I would have, um, I suppose, came across or noticed is that the let's say the load we used in a youth population um if we just prescribed by body mass like go at 50 percent body mass or 50 percent um both of us rob went to 50 percent body mass as youth athletes the actual decrease in velocity could be double double that between us given the diverging rates of um of of strength specifically horizontal strength so again, just look at this from a squat standpoint. Would you ever walk into a team and say, yeah, you, I want everyone to put 50% of body weight on it because you have some guys that are really strong and some guys that are not so strong on it. So, you know, what's key is we want the load that we prescribe. It doesn't have to be 
to the exact percentage, but we want to get a consistent training stimulus um, so that the, um, the training stimulus matches the desired adaptation, be it in a strength speed, power, or speed strength zone for these horizontal strength training modalities. Before we dive into why you would use low, medium, and high loads in both these um, uh, pull and push, I'm going to caveat that by a que- with a question. Do people need to worry about the long-term adaptation of sprint technique using heavy loads? What do we know in this yeah. area? <clears throat> it's completely, there's no research to support it. But I mean, if, if I take my kids for a walk in a push sled instead of a pram or a stroller or a buggy like that's not good you know it's the polarization approach to it but you know if you're looking at using um, resisted sled training as a a a supplemental modality not a substitute for a sprint training program you know if i do between two sets of between six to eight reps i'll take energy systems into account so want to solely focus on ATP CP standpoint of it so you know let's say we're doing five seconds so five seconds by eight is 40 seconds by another by two sets is one minute 20 so in one minute 20 one minute and 20 seconds of training a week I don't think that that's going to affect as long as we're putting a technical emphasis on the unresisted component now, if we substitute and say we're not doing any unresisted sprinting, we're not doing, we're just going to do resisted sprinting. Could it have an impact? You know, maybe. Um, but as long as it, there's a holistic approach to it, and we we don't become polarized in our approach, I don't see any negative aspects to it. As long as here's the other key thing: you coach it. As long as you coach it. So I've had more success. I won't say in teaching someone how to sprint properly i'll say a team sport youth athlete where i'm caught for time i've had a little bit more success when i'm caught for time in trying to coach proper technique of resisted let's say sled push or pull getting that power line with them and getting them to maintain that straight line from ankle to hip or getting them to push more horizontally into the ground if i'm just trying to emphasize acceleration just the accelerative component and I'm focusing on initial acceleration for a um, youth team sport athlete than I would by taking them completely unresisted because what I see it as is it's an external stimulus that you can use as a coaching cue. So it's a different type of coaching and it doesn't mean you don't do it unresisted and you don't focus on it. Now track and field, I learned a very big lesson. I was training, she was the number two in state in Dallas training or I was doing my PhD and I did a lot of work on some resisted sled push work and I actually increased some levels of acceleration but I did it at the cost of decreasing Vmax with her because and I just put too much on the initial acceleration and then not enough on Vmax and what she needed was she actually needed much more max velocity stuff but the demands of an individual track and field athlete compared to a team sport athlete are very very different you know with regards and again let's not get polarized multiple reasons to do unresisted sprint training in addition to resisted injury prevention i do it with current team i'm head of performance we'll do it closer to game 
so that we actually, within 48 hours, so we'll do max velocity work, so we actually prepare them for the demands of what they're going to face on um, the weekend, on the Saturday or Sunday. We might do it on the Thursday. We do more velocity work. Plyometrics. Ken used to always say this to me, Ken Clark, is sprinting is the greatest plyometric the body can do. There is no exercise that gets you on and off the ground in 0.1 of a second, like sprinting. So unresisted sprinting from a plyometric standpoint. So again, it's about not being polarized. But sometimes with team sport athletes, I think you can get good bang for your buck as long as you coach it and you can incorporate different aspects of technical reinforcement of exercises while getting a horizontal strength training stimulus which could all have been preceded by doing some unresisted sprint work with an emphasis on, on max velocity and proper technique without any external load. One thing I Did just that, want to cover quickly. Uh, that, that explain it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. One okay, thing I want to yeah. just, just, just come back to quickly, and it's something that I spoke to JB Marin about, and that's the, the, the surface friction. You mentioned it with the wet and the dry. Is there anything that people can do to get a little bit more of an objective view on the surface that they're using to then manipulate accordingly? Yeah, so, you know, one of the things I would have done with that, there was a there was something I really liked. Um, I was spoiled for weather in Texas the last 10 years, obviously. Different ball game being home in Ireland. Um, but we, we would have to go indoors because of the heat. I don't have to go indoors ever because of the heat in Ireland anymore, but we might go indoors sometimes. And I used this magic carpet sled indoors, and it would... Be, be just slide across it so one of the things I would do is I would just base it off kind of a time under tension or or the energy system I'm trying to you know improve maybe ATP so what I would do is just cut my uh, reps off so I would want to know the strength training zone that I'm trying to train in be it strength speed with an emphasis on maybe some initial acceleration be it power with some of the mid to late acceleration side of it or I can even use the different zones as a tapering strategy so that just within my periodized plan my horizontal strength training modalities are going to decrease in the overall volume but increase in sprint intensity or decrease in the the load intensity on it and taper into competition but one of the things I would have done is I would have just had them sprint for um, four to five seconds so that I just knew that the distance then they were covering was going to give enough of the stimulus and for example if I wanted to um, if I wanted to focus on that initial acceleration I would typically try and have the sprint distance be under 10 yards so what I'm trying to do then is manipulate the load to where I'm telling athletes you need to cross the 10 yard line before I blow the whistle on the four second mark and they would up their load till they get to that point and that's one where you don't need assessment you can do it when you're working with large groups or large athletes if I have them in the power zone I like use like them sprinting a little bit more like 17 to 20 type yards and then we would up the load until they can cover that kind of 17 yards in the four seconds four to five seconds on it and then or what I would do is if we're going on a speed strength use like it around two and 22 and a half to 25 yards I would have them increase the load until they can cross it on the whistle in that four seconds as well so that's how I would have worked it with large groups of athletes and exactly how I'm going to have to work it with the group of athletes I have at the moment as well and that will account for friction be it you're on a astroturf be it you're on concrete be it you're on grass 
Um, is it ideal? Is it optimal? No, but we can't always do the best. We can do the best available, um, which is, is key. One thing I want to finish off with, and this is one, this is something that you mentioned beforehand, and we're going back and forth with with the um, the type of questions we're going to go through today. Common misconceptions, questions, or gripes that people have with resisted sprinting. It was one thing that was brought up because maybe you've had a little few twist spats here and there. Maybe you hinted at with a the odd one <laughs> with a I'd say popular. A, certainly a polarizing character in our industry. Yeah. We'll mention the name. That's fine. People can make up their own mind. But is there anything that was common in those conversations that have come up elsewhere that you could kind of lay, the, lay your um, opinions on? Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's really just that it's a, it's a, um, it's, it's, it's the polarized approach. You know, people say change in your lens right we'll change our lens and what we do well I, I really believe that the distortion lies in the brain behind the lens you know on to what your kind of bias would be you know me i've worked with like i said I've got great exposure jesuit college dallas with 21 sports across 750 athletes and would totally change my um totally change my uh, approach on how i prescribe training for different people but the key thing to really realize and the big take-home message is that resisted sled training is a tool in your toolbox and what it should do is it should supplement a well-rounded training program for a specific purpose within a periodized plan specific to the athlete and it should not substitute for unresisted sprinting or traditional strength training so when I was working with track and field um, coaches and athletes, and I was specifically in Jesuit with Doug Robinson, and a little bit hesitant to resisted sprinting at the start, and I said, mm, view it like this. I'm going to take out our deadlift with the athletes, and I'm going to plug in some heavy resisted sprinting uh, rather than, and don't view it as a track and field technical exercise, view it as a horizontal strength training modality rather than us focusing on the deadlift. Um, the combination, which is interesting, what I noticed is you do have to be a little careful. There's not much research on it, but just anecdotally, is you have to be a little careful, specifically with some developmental athletes um, and team sport athletes specifically that have a lot of accelerations and decelerations. I specifically saw it in lacrosse, was the combination of certain compound, your traditional compound A block vertical strength training movements with heavy uh, resisted sled training would have been I would have seen when I combined some heavy load work with some heavy squats I actually saw a lot of adductor strains with it as well and I changed out for some um, some glute bridge or some uh, sorry hip thrust exercises then as well just so the loading was a little less on the knee um, and the adductor so some aspects um, like that but you know that's that's the key thing is that it it supplements a well-rounded training program and it does not substitute for a uh, unresisted sprinting or traditional strength training program see if it fits and if it doesn't fit in your program it's fine i don't think anyone is going to get too uh, upset about it view it again view it like you would view how you treat a squat um the other thing i suppose kind of take home message would be that 
with percentage body mass versus what I had used, which was um, the velocity decrement approaches. It's just conscious to be aware then as well that there's large between athlete variations exist. So the sled push typically exhibits a much higher variability than a sled pull, probably because the movement is initiated with the arms. Um, but both of those exercises kind of they the exercises exhibit an increased variability with increasing sled loads so the higher the load you put on the more variability you have between athletes reinforcing the need for the the velocity decrement just to individualize the type of training that you're looking for um and then the last thing is kind of take home i suppose have on it would be that the heavier external loads um they f- might favor horizontal force production in the early phase of acceleration, specifically that zero to 10. Um, but what I had found is that sled pulling had a little bit more pronounced uh, results compared to sled pushing. But I actually like heavy sled pushing now to re-emphasize. I mean, we hear multiple times from a technical standpoint, we need to slow down sometimes to speed up in teaching some technical aspects. Well, you, I, I would have used a sled to as a dynamic wall drill to slow them down but um, emphasize some different aspects of postural control or leg um, mechanics on it so uh, yeah but look as I said the main thing is don't be polarized on it it's a tool in the toolbox with regards to approach to it and that it should supplement a well-rounded program that's just key and simple great place to uh, to finish off thank you for that we didn't mention the person's name, which you got away with there. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that as well. Otherwise, there might be some hate coming on your Twitter direct messages in a couple of weeks. No, no, nah, I've had, I'm joking. I've had some really good, really good discussion. Yeah, I've had some really good discussions with multiple people, you know, on it. And usually, you know, uh, perspective and empathy will solve majority of the world's problems. And if you get a chance to just share your perspective with people and people are open to it, um, and, and look, I love confrontation anyway, so I don't, uh, not on social media as much. I enjoy it much more face-to-face. So. <laughs> no, that's great, mate. Well, thank you very much. Thank you very much for the last hour. And thank you very much for fitting me in the first six weeks to you coming back to Ireland, because I know it's been a, a very chaotic, especially with uh, with three kids in tow as well. But um, where can people get to know more about you, social media, uh, research, etc.? Yeah, so I suppose um, my 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 Twitter handle probably, um, which is mcahlphd, um, and then I have a website mcahlphd.com on that as well. Um, obviously through Satanta College is probably a good good opportunity as well, um, where you can you can reach me through that too. And um, yeah, they're kind of I suppose the three platforms, Rob, where um, I can be reached at. Perfect. Well, like I say, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to uh, to have you on, to have a chat, and look forward to keeping in touch, and good luck with the new role, um, being back home, and everything else. No, thanks very much. Really appreciate you having me on. My pleasure. Thanks, mate. Thanks for tuning in to episode 427 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. Big thanks to Michal for giving up plenty of his time in the first six weeks of getting back to Ireland after 10 years away so I really appreciate his time and his knowledge and expertise in this particular area and being so open and sharing all that knowledge with us so big thanks to Hawking Dynamics team builder 
Smatterbase, Omega Wave, and of course, Santa College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast could not run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate their support. So after 427 episodes, I want to say another big thanks to you for tuning in. Really appreciate your support, and I'll speak to you next time. <laughs>